In this episode, we speak with Shrikanth Falamakani, co-founder, group chief executive, and executive vice chairman of Fractal, a provider of artificial intelligence to companies. Fractal's businesses include Crux Intelligence, which provides AI-driven business intelligence, Eugene AI for sustainability, Asper AI for revenue growth management, and Senseforth AI, conversational AI for sales and customer service. Since its founding in 2000, the company has raised more than $680 million from TPG, APAX, TA Associates, and other notable investors, and has empowered more than 100 Fortune 500 companies with its AI, data, and analytics-driven business strategies. I am your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to subscribe. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Srikan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. Likewise, RJ, it's a pleasure being here. I think there's no better time to be speaking with you because AI is front and center in the tech universe. It seems like we're embarking on a new generation of tech entrepreneurship and overall the tech space. Let's talk about fractal analytics. Let's start off there so we can give our audience kind of an overview of what your company does and how it fits into the overall AI landscape. Sure. So Fractal's vision is to power every human decision in the enterprise. So companies around the world make billions of decisions every day. And these decisions could be better if we brought algorithms, if we brought in AI, machine learning to automate, augment, or just humanize those decisions. And what Fractal does is bring those algorithms to solve problems, working with some of the largest companies in the world. We work with 150 of the Fortune 500 companies, and we are a partner in automating and augmenting their decisions and powering every human decision in the enterprise. Mm -hmm. AI is, I think, proliferating into almost every aspect of the operations of a company. Maybe could you give us an example of, I'm sure there's small use cases and big use cases. Can you tell us about how you interact with some of these Fortune 500 companies? It's usually across five key areas. Starts with customer or consumer, understanding the consumer and personalizing the consumer experience or customer experience or making it frictionless or just understanding what's the next best action at the consumer or customer level. These are very, very important for all companies because this is the primary revenue engine or growth engine for companies. So if we can make that experience frictionless through use of machine learning and algorithms, we can certainly increase success of companies. So we've seen that whether e-commerce, for example, if you have a one to one and a half percent conversion rate, if you can improve digital conversion rate from there to two to two and a half percent, you're suddenly talking of billions of dollars of added value. And you can do that by understanding the customer journey and making it frictionless, making it more personalized, predicting what's going to happen next, et cetera. So that's one area. The second area is in productivity. All companies are trying to increase their productivity. And with generative AI, you've seen a huge change in productivity, whether it's summarizing documents, asking questions, or making your investments more effective, or just making sure that your supply chain is more tightly run in the sense that there is no gap between demand and supply. There are various parts of the organization, operationally intensive aspects of every organization which require productivity boosts, and machine learning can significantly alter that. That's two. 
Three is in improving new product introduction. Whenever you build a new product, you have a very high chance of failure. 90 to 95% of new products fail to reach their goals. So if you can use algorithms to understand what consumers really want and then build a product that really meets their needs, you have a higher chance of succeeding. So that's the third thing. Fourth is companies are trying to be more agile, more responsive, and more real-time in the way they make decisions. So if you can use data to drive those executive decisions, that's number four. And five is if you can use data to reinvent yourself, build a new business model, or make yourself more sustainable, that's five. So these are the five key areas that we see big companies around the world try to use AI to make better decisions, to get better in general. And generative AI is actually making all of these things more possible, more easy, and actually creating new possibilities altogether. Mm-hmm. I assume that in order for AI to be effective, you need large amounts of data. And so if you're trying to predict new product introductions, you have to be collecting data or gleaning insights from what consumers of these particular large corporations are feeling and, and where they're headed. How do you interact or how do you like pull that data? The good news, Ajay, is that Data is prolific. It's all over the place. It's proliferating. It's been proliferating for a very long time. So access to data is no longer a problem. There's vast troves of data on the internet, people talking about products and services on blogs and review sites, et cetera. And then organizations have collected transaction data, survey data, product data, and so on. So with all of that information, really you're spoiled for choice. The problem has been traditionally that bringing all those data sources together, especially the unstructured data sources like video, voice, text, were hard problems to solve if you go back 10 years. But now with AI advances, specifically the generative AI advances, you see that you can manipulate text data or image data or video data or voice data much better and therefore integrate them into the way you drive intelligence and decision-making inside organizations. Have you found that certain sectors were faster to adopt fractal analytics, like say the you know CPG companies? Which sectors are most kind of pronounced within your client mix? What we've seen is companies that have in mature industries, which are very competitive, have much higher need because you have to work very hard to deliver additional shareholder returns to win in the marketplace. So there we see much better traction because it is needed. Companies, for example, we serve across the globe in markets where growth is not a problem, where companies are growing at 20% or 25% without a challenge. They don't use analytics because they don't need analytics. It's when growth becomes a challenge. It's when you know the marketplace is much more competitive. That's where you see industries getting very good at using data to drive decisions. So yes, consumer goods companies have traditionally been very good because they always have to fight for that 1% market share up and down, right? So they, they're always fighting for that. The financial services companies are also traditionally been very good at using data. And some of them have been slower. For healthcare, for example, has been relatively slow. Insurance industries, you know, somewhere in between. Technology industry, for example, because they're native to this kind of technology, they've been very good at using data as well. So you see a mix, but in general, we see that uh, when an industry becomes more competitive and more mature, the need for analytics actually goes up. Mm -hmm. Now, tell us about your background and how you got into the space. I know you've been doing this for a long time, which has positioned you nicely on the advent or the boom in AI, but tell us about your background. So my background is engineering. I did my electrical engineering and did my MBA. And while doing my engineering, I realized that apart from my passion for mathematics, which has always been very high, I also started loving psychology and understanding human behavior. So as I was looking for what to do, this combination of math plus human behavior was really attractive to me. 
And analytics and AI has provided me that opportunity to bring math and human behavior in understanding people, understanding decisions, and automating those decisions. So it's been 23 years of building Fractal. We have had a very long journey. We started when analytics or AI wasn't a thing. It is certainly not a hot trend. And today, it's, we feel fortunate to have been in this space for this long and have survived to be in a position to now succeed in, in these industries. And we've done well over the years. We have served hundreds of Fortune 500 companies. We've been fortunate to have their trust. And we've been also been fortunate in being able to hire very good people. So we are in a really good position right now when the market is really hot and analytics is really attractive. And we are also well positioned with 4,000 people team. We are really well positioned to serve the world. Yeah, I, I noticed you are located in many different countries and you've got thousands of employees. Tell us about your work environment. I presume in order to be able to scale as quickly as you have been and meet market demand, you have to be excellent in terms of bringing in the right talent. So how do you go about doing that? And is this a combination of remote and in-person environment? So talent is one of the most important vectors of our success. And we have been somewhat fortunate in being very selective with talent right from the beginning. So throughout our history, we've had a selection ratio of about one is 200, and now it's about one is to 200, which means that in the last year, year and a half, we have hired about 2000 people, but to hire 2000 people, we have looked at 400,000 resumes. So one in 200 people who apply to Fractal actually gets in. So it's a very highly selective process. It is a process that ensures that we have people who are really good at what they do and also culturally aligned with how we want to serve our clients. So we need expertise because we are solving some very complex problems around the world, but we also need humility because if you're serving some of the biggest companies in the world, we have to be humble to serve. So this combination of expertise and humility is the kind of talent that we seek at Fractal. And we've been very fortunate in being able to attract such a talent. Now, once that talent is on board, we have to create an environment where they feel highly trusted. It's a transparent culture and they're free to do what they want. Right? So highly autonomous, highly trusted, and an environment where there is a lot of transparency. So an example of that would be whatever we are presenting to our board, we also present the same slides to all of Fractal and the exact same slides to our clients. This is one vision of what Fractal is and everybody has access to the same information, we create the sense of transparency and trust. We run a weekly town hall meeting where any question can be asked and we spend 45 minutes in answering questions every week. So these are the kinds of practices that we've created, which creates a sense of transparency and the sense of trust, and then gets our people to do our best work with the clients that we serve. You know, with such a, a low kind of acceptance rate, you know, it seems like it's very difficult to get into your company, you know, what's your process for recruiting? How do you get the best of the best? It is a combination of a test. We run a test in the very beginning, and then we have an elaborate interview process. The interview process involves rejection in case anyone says no. So it's a highly selective process because if one person doesn't like what they're saying, that person is not hired into factory. Now it is highly selective because of that reason. So in some ways, we are probably missing out on some very good talent as well. But the ones that we do hire are really, really good. Mm -hmm. And this is across the board, across the globe. Do you recruit from certain schools? Do you find that in certain countries, you're able to recruit certain types of talent? Yes, we hire globally. 
but a large majority of our hiring is in India where we have a large workforce and there we are on various campus programs, campus selection programs, and we have a campus program in multiple parts of the world. The idea is that we can hire young and fresh talent, and then we can mold them in the way that we think is best for Fractal and for our clients. So that works out really well for us. But because we are growing really rapidly, we also hire across the board at various levels. And then that recruitment happens globally. And again, we have this very elaborate process for hiring in those situations as well. We've seen great talent coming from the technology industry. We see good talent coming from the management consultant industry. And we also see domain experts coming from various industries that we serve. They all become part of the fractal overall talent pool. On top of that, we hire algorithms people or AI researchers. We hire engineering talent and we hire design talent. By bringing this combination of algorithms, design and engineering, we tend to solve a lot of good problems. And one of the ways we think of solving problems is work backwards from a decision rather than work forwards from data. Because many technology enthusiasts start with data and think that's where all the answers lie. Yes, the answers lie in the data, but you have to start with the problems or the decisions and work backwards from there. It's subtle, but it's very important when you know what your end outcome is and work backwards from there rather than work forward from your data. So that's the fractal process, com combining design and data science or behavioral science and data science in order to solve some of the biggest problems. You've raised over $350 million from notable investors. At what point did you decide to raise a significant amount of capital? What did you see happening in your business, which led you to say, okay, now's the time to raise you know, a significant amount? We were bootstrapped for the first many years, partly because we were not growing fast enough to be able to attract capital. And I think this industry was very nascent. So there was not a lot of belief in the investors about this space. So only in 2013, when we were growing really fast and we needed to ensure just for working capital purposes, we need to raise more capital. We were always profitable, but the speed at which we we're growing, we were not generating enough cash to even just to satisfy the growth in working capital. So that's the time we brought on PA. They put in 25 million in 2013. In 2016, we raised 100 million from Kazana. In 2019, 200 from APAX. And in 2021, we raised another 360 from TPG. So overall, we have raised about 685 million in these last uh, 10 years. Uh, a lot of that has gone in as secondary transactions. And Fractal has been relatively capital efficient. Not more than 100 million has gone into the company. And most of that has actually been used to buy companies or acquire companies. So organically, we've been profitable and growing. We've used capital more as an inorganic approach to buying companies and acquiring companies. That's fantastic. I sense that there's a couple of advantages with fractal analytics versus maybe potential competitors that play in a similar space in that you started very early, maybe when less people were thinking about AI. And then secondly, you're located in a talent-rich country where maybe cost is a little bit more favorable for that talent. Do you see it that way? Yes, I think there's no question that being early in the space was helpful because by the time the space became very interesting, I think it would have been a very hard time to get in. We already had set up the business. We were already profitable. We had the trust of maybe 50 of the Fortune 500 clients back then. So we were in a very good position when AI took off. Around 2010, AI took off. We saw the first set of very interesting results coming from deep learning from various labs around the world between the 2008 to 10 timeframe. And then by 2015, what we saw was 
Fortune 100 companies were making presentations to their board about how they're leveraging data, how they're driving competitive advantage with AI, et cetera. So that's the time we saw significant takeoff of the business. And we were very ready because we had spent 10 years already building the business and we, have, we were very profitable and we had the trust of many, many companies. So it would have been very difficult to have started the company much later and, and got to the same level of success. Secondly, as far as cost is concerned, yes, it's been an advantage in having slightly lower costs, but the cost advantage is actually minimal compared to the talent arbitrage that we have. We really cannot hire fast enough and that much talent anywhere else. If you want to hire 100, let's say high quality engineers, and in the Bay Area, it would take you a really long time, unless you're Google or, or Meta or someone like that, it takes really long time to hire. So being in a different market actually has provided us better access to talent more than the cost. I'm really curious about those early days. Maybe like it sounds like there was about 10 years where you were bootstrapping and you said maybe you weren't growing as fast at that time. How challenging was that from like an entrepreneur's point of view, the entrepreneurial journey at that time? Extremely challenging because you are doing something you don't know if it's working, right? You don't have very solid feedback coming in that, yes, this is working and you're in the right track. So your conviction is what is taking you forward, but not a lot of data to suggest that you're succeeding. And secondly, you have a peer group, which is doing really well, working for big companies, flying business class or, or first class. And you're, you're feeling, okay, what's going on in my life? Why am I the loser trying to do this? And I don't have any evidence of success. The evidence of success actually was coming from our clients. They loved what we were doing. Evidence of success was coming from people who are working for Fractal because they're really enjoying what they're doing. What we did not have was feedback from investors or some other financial metrics, which made us feel like this is going to take off. So that required a lot of conviction and having the tenacity to hold on when things were very difficult. And then I learned a lot of lessons in terms of how to sell and not to sell to investors. So it was very good in some ways because it, life was dealing very difficult blows, but we were getting better and better at handling those issues. And when the business took off, we were in a really good position. You know, we were humble because we have seen the tough times. We, were, we did not get arrogant. We did not take $100 million of capital and throw it all away like many startup entrepreneurs do. We're very conservative with how we use the capital. That's really helped us as well. Did you have a core team with you that kind of lasted from the beginning to today? Was that kind of a part of how you were able to kind of succeed? Yes. I think in the, we struggled a little bit in the first few years, but once a core team got formed, that team has been there for about 15 years, 15 odd years with Fractal. So that's been very helpful because they define what Fractal is today and are taking us to the next level. So it's been very helpful. But also what we have seen is there are people who are really good at some stage of a business and are not suited for the next stage of the business. So we have a mix. So some people were amazing for Fractal in the first few years, but they also realized that this is not really their calling once Fractal became somewhat bigger. They wanted to go back and do some more startup-like situations. Whereas there are some who scale nicely with the business and are really leading fractal. So or many of our exec team members, let's say half of the exec team, are people who have spent a substantial amount of time in fractal. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we'll see a transition out from the, the founder will bring in an, a new CEO, but it looks like you've stayed in this role over the past two decades. Did you ever think like, oh, how do I adjust myself and how I lead? Because we're now thousands of people. I have seen that every time I have been able to grow, I've been able to grow the business. So I'm at once the biggest advantage for Fractal. I'm also the biggest weakness for Fractal because 
my limitations automatically become the limitations of the company I'm leading. So I've seen my growth leading to fractals growth. So one of those things I have believed in is taking feedback and working on feedback. So I remember back in 2009, we had an investor who came and spent a full day with Fractal. And at the end of the day, he told me, Shrikant, I like your business. I don't like you. And I'm not going to invest in you because I don't think you can scale this business. You're not good enough. So this was a very hard feedback to take. But then, you know, I processed that feedback. And after a couple of days of soul searching, I actually told my entire executive team that, look, you know, the day you spent with that investor, he loved our business. Nothing wrong with our business. He had problems with me. He thought I was not good enough. So I want to make sure that they know that problem was not with the business, it was with me. But then after that, I worked on that feedback. Okay, how do I change myself in order to be the CEO that Fractal needs today? And I think once I made those changes, I think Fractal was more successful. So I've seen that time and again at every stage. I feel like, okay, I may not be good enough at this stage to be the CEO, but then if I could get better, then I would be the right CEO and I could take Fractal to the next level. What do you think it was that that investor was seeing that made him make that comment? It's a good question. I don't really know. I think what he could not visualize was that was about my ability to handle Fortune 500 companies and build big relationships with them, especially these are global companies. And he saw us and he felt like these guys, they look young, they look immature. And I don't know if they can really have those conversations with the big companies of the world and lead those big relationships and sign those $100 million deals. He didn't see us doing that. And he didn't see me doing that. He felt that maybe someone with more years of experience and more fundraising experience, more client experience would be able to do that. But I think that's something that we could learn and we learned it. Does that type of experience also fuel you to kind of prove people wrong? Absolutely. I'm, I'm competitive by nature. And the feedback, it's very hard to accept feedback. I think natural inclination of all human beings is to reject feedback. First thing you hear feedback, you say, this is not me. Obviously, you don't know me enough. You spent a day with me. I have spent, you know, whatever, 30 years of my life being with me. So I know myself better. But then that's a natural response. Once you sort of calm down and process it, then you realize that, okay, there is some truth to it. And then once you accept that feedback and work on it, you get better. But in that process, you really enjoy it because once you know that this feedback is real, all it takes is to fix it. And then you're at the next level as an entrepreneur, as a business leader. So I really enjoyed this idea of getting feedback, brutal negative feedback, and then working on it and getting better. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's always insights that you uncover or you find at the appropriate time as you're scaling the business. What would be the most important insight you think you've uncovered along this journey? I will tell you a story again around the 2010 timeframe. I was looking for a coach. So a gentleman showed up and he was a CEO of a big consumer goods company. He had just retired and he was going to become a coach. So he and I met up. We spent about a couple of hours and then he said, you know, let me spend a couple of days in your office just to get to know you guys. And then I'll come back and share some feedback with you. So after a few days, he came and shared with me something that was really brutal. He told me, Shrikant, you are the most client unfriendly organization I've ever met. You're not really customer centric or client centric. And I was like, not at all. That's impossible. Look at our walls. It says client value creation. That's one of our core values. What are you talking about? Look at all the big problems that we solve for our clients. And he was like, no, your conversations internally are always critical of clients. You never actually have client conversations. You're obsessed with the craft of analytics, the craft of AI. 
you guys are good craftsmen that doesn't make you a good businessman or a good firm to serve your clients so once i accepted that feedback and that was a big moment for us that what you think you are your client client centricity is really hard and you know most companies think they are client centric but they are not so once we realize that we pretend to be client centric but we are not actually client centric we changed ourselves so first thing mm. we did was to set up nps net promoter score as a key metric in fact we would start every meeting by looking at a net promoter score we started with a single digit net promoter score i think it was 8 and now we are at 70 plus so we made a big change second thing we said was let's stop selling for one full year we won't sell to anybody we'll just serve our existing clients and we will not sell anything so that let's get better at serving and i think that was very interesting because that was the year we grew the most in percentage terms it's still on record the highest growth year for fractal was the year we did not sell that was very very interesting and then you know what we realized over time was that to be truly client centric you have to invent and invest on behalf of your client so one is to listen to them serve them really well but when you take client centricity to the next level like jeff bezos says you have to invest and invent on their behalf so we directed our r&d expenditure to client centricity we said okay what do our clients needs next so let's invest 12 13% of our revenue on r&d so by investing in r&d and being client centric i think we have really taken the business forward so my biggest insight about business is it's hard to be customer centric or client centric most companies that say they are are not client centric there are very few like amazon who are truly client centric and that is a significant difference and those companies always tend to grow faster than the others it's interesting because it sounded like you knew theoretically what you should be doing but it wasn't put into practice and it took this coach to tell you why there was a disconnect there so you know we're coming up on time we have two final questions one is can you tell us about a person who has had a profound influence on you i think it would be jeff bezos because i have really liked his style of leadership and i've read all his shareholder letters starting from 1990s and i felt that those were amazing filled with insight and he said those things which he showed the world to be true 10 15 years later so for someone to have that level of insight and that long term thinking has been remarkable two things i learned from jeff bezos one is customer centricity like i just mentioned to you and the second one is long term thinking how can you think 5 6 7 years ahead of your competition and work that into your plans that is something that again only amazon has demonstrated its ability to think long term so i really value what i've learned from jeff bezos watching his videos and you know, listening to his podcasts and you know uh, reading his books that has been very insightful a uh, last question can you tell us about a charity cause or other endeavor that you're passionate about i'm very interested in india's long term success because india is one of those countries it's now the fifth largest economy in the world i think it's going to become the third largest economy in in the next 7 years so it's a country that had 25% of the world's gdp 200 years ago it was a quarter of the world's gdp and then you know the british invasion happened or whatever colonialism happened and i think india has lost ground i feel like india's long term success is very important to me and i think preparing india for that is is something that i believe in and i feel there are two axes of success for india education and entrepreneurship i seriously sincerely believe that the long term success of any economy is a function of education and entrepreneurship so i have spent a lot of my time on education especially in undergrad education i you know contributed to a, i founded a university called plaksha university which is doing reimagining higher education it's doing a fantastic job of rethinking how 
higher education should be there and, and specifically engineering education. And then on entrepreneurship, I've been mentoring a bunch of entrepreneurs around the world to help them in being more successful. So these are the two vectors that I feel are critical for an economy. And that's where I've been contributing my time and money. Fantastic. Well, Srikanth, I want to thank you again for taking the time. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Ajit.